0: Good morning. Good morning. Mm, let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and for your mercy. We thank you for your watch care of this week. We thank you for the truth that you revealed to us, for your spirit to help help lead us, transform us, heal us. We thank you for Jesus. We ask that you will join us now, enlighten our minds, draw us closer to you, closer to each other, make us effective at this time in history to be lights in this dark world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing lesson 10 in the quarterly Genesis, and the title is uh, Jacob. Israel. Now, the last paragraph in Sabbath's lesson reads, In other words, despite all that ha- that happens, the story of the patriarchs and their family is told in Scripture in order to show us that God is faithful to fulfill what he has promised and that he will do so despite what, at times, seems to be nothing but his people doing all that they can to stop that fulfillment. No, it's absolutely certain that God is faithful. As Paul said in Romans 3, 4, Let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. as the New King James. When is God judged? When God may overcome when he is judged. By whom is God Judged. How is God judged? When is God judged? What is the purpose of God's judgment? Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment. Oh, the hour of His Judgment Is that the hour that he sits in a judicial magistrate going over records and making rulings? Or is it the hour in human history that we finally judge him to be who Jesus was revealed him to be and stop judging him to be this imperial dictator that Satan says he is? The central issue in the war, the central core issue in the war. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. The central issue in the war, the knowledge of God. God is faithful, consistent, reliable, predictable, unwavering, true. And we can judge him reliable, faithful, We can judge him to be so. We can judge him to be like Jesus revealed him to be. And we can reject the allegations and lies of Satan. But could we present the idea of God being faithful in keeping his promises in such a way that we actually end up misrepresenting God to be like Satan says he is? The central issue is God is like Jesus revealed him to be. He's not like Satan says. Could we represent God keeping his promises in such a way that it actually makes Satan's case for him? Though we are claiming that we're simply presenting a God who keeps his promises. Such as, God is faithful to fulfill what he has promised and that he will do so despite what at times seems to be nothing but his people doing all they can to stop the fulfillment. Is there a qualifier not included in this statement that without the qualifier could allow a false understanding of what is probably meant? I'm not going to suggest they didn't mean what I mean. I'm just suggesting it's poorly worded. For instance, would it be more accurate to say God is faithful to fulfill what he has promised to do in governance of himself for the eradication of sins and the saving of sinners? He's promised He will fulfill what he's promised to do in governance of himself. He promised to send the Messiah, and he did. He promised to provide salvation through Jesus for all who trust him, and he did. He promised to overcome sin and Satan by the victory of Christ, and he did he promised to destroy death and bring life and immortality to light and he did he promised that the world would never again be totally destroyed by a flood and it hasn't he promised that abraham's descendants through isaac and jacob would inherit the land of palestine for the purpose of being the branch of the human family through who the seed that would crush the serpent's head would come and all the world would be blessed and they were and he fulfilled that promise he promised to send the holy spirit and he has. He promised that he would not leave us nor forsake us, and he hasn't. But should we take Jeremiah eighteen seven to 10 into account when we talk about the Lord fulfilling his promises? Which reads, If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended for it. Will God fulfill his promises in nations and lives regardless of what the people do? So Jonah came with a true message or a false message from God about what God was going to do to Nineveh. True message. But did God keep that promise? He promised. And Jonah was very upset. You promised you'd kill them. You promised. You promised. Are some of God's promises conditional upon the response of the people? Or do we suggest that God as sovereign will do whatever God wants and we are merely puppets whose strings God controls? God will do what God will do. And who are we to question? When King Saul committed suicide by falling on his own sword... You know, the scripture in one place describes it very much that way. Paul asked his armor bearer to run through. wouldn't do it, so Saul fell on his own sword. But in another place, after describing the request of the armor bearer, wouldn't do it. The Bible says God put Saul to death. God put Saul to death. Does that mean that when Saul fell on his sword, he really didn't want to die, but behind the scenes were angels forcing him down on that sword. Or that perhaps God brainwashed him like Jim Jones did the people in Jonestown to drink the Kool-Aid, and and it was God messing with his head to get him to fall on a sword. Is that what we're suggesting, that God put him to death? God was pulling the strings, the grand puppet master? This is how some people present God's sovereignty. God had a promise. How about Romans nine fifteen through 18? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and hardens whom he wants to harden. How do you answer that? What does that mean? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? I see some head shaking. No, you don't believe the Bible. We believe the Bible here. The Bible is our rule of faith. And if the Bible said it, I believe it. And that's all there is to it. Are you going to deny scripture and put your own reason over scripture? This is what is argued when you don't accept what it says. I I get this argument all the time. You're putting your own reason over it. The Bible says it. God did it. He's sovereign. Well, the actual Bible describes Pharaoh's heart hardening in three separate different ways. First description, Exodus 4.21. Then the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt... See that you perform before Pharaoh all these wonders I have given you to perform, to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let your people go. That's Exodus 4.21. Exodus 7, 3 and 4. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. And Exodus 9.12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen. So three different ways the Lord did it. But, interestingly enough, Exodus 7.13. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard. Exodus 7.14. Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to listen and let the people go. Uh, 7.22. Because the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and, and Pharaoh's heart became hard, and then Exodus 8.19, the magicians and Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hard. It's neutral. It's not telling us who did. It's just, it just process. It happened. And then the third way, Exodus 8.15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, and he would not listen. Exodus 8.32, but this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Exodus 934 and 35. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. Now, will somebody please inform me which is the inspired verses? Which are the inspired verses? Which is Moses just kind of having a little fantasy novel writing session over here? And which is Moses being inspired by the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds? Or are they all inspired? Are they not all inspired by the same Holy Spirit? Well, then which is it? How do we understand this? This is one of the places the Bible is brilliant and completely eviscerates the lie that God's law is like human law. It eviscerates it. It exposes how reality works, design law, how God's kingdom works. Why does the scripture say it that way, man? I'm explaining it. Um. (laughs) (laughs) what law lens do you look at this through how do you understand god's sovereignty If we believe the lie, God's law functions like human law, he makes up rules and as the sovereignty enforces rules and he punishes rule breakers, then God acts to harden Pharaoh's heart to punish him for his wickedness in holding the Jews as slaves. He didn't want him to repent because they held the Jews. They needed punishment so he hardened his heart so he could punish them. It's often taught this way. Have you ever heard it? When we turn to worshiping the creator and understand his laws or design laws and we realize that the supreme law is love and love only operates in an atmosphere of freedom. 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 Puppets can't love. Computers can't be programmed to love. You can't put a knife to someone's head and say, love me or I'll kill you and actually get love from that. It doesn't work. Love actually requires real freedom. And what God wants, he wants our love, he wants our trust, he wants our loyalty, he wants our devotion, he wants our friendship. You can't get it by threatening to kill the people who don't give it to you. If you try to do that, do this or else, you get rebellion. Therefore, we understand that God is sovereign in maintaining the laws he constructs reality to operate upon, including the law of liberty. He leaves people free. So in regard to Pharaoh, God presented Pharaoh with truth over and over and over again. Truth, that his what he's worshiping is nothing. They're just pieces of wood, stone, metal, nothing. And that Moses' God is the creator. Truth, over and over and over again, in the most powerful, convincing, and profound ways. Yet, Pharaoh was left free to accept or reject that truth. What happens in the heart, any human heart, when truth is understood and rejected design law folks unavoidably hardens it's not neutral it hardens it becomes less sensitive to future truth and thus god's role in hardening his heart pharaoh's heart was presenting the truth say uh, pharaoh's role was in rejecting the truth. Would Pharaoh's heart had become as hard as it did if he was never presented with the truth? No, No. It would not have hardened as it did. And so the three descriptions are accurate. God hardened it by presenting the truth. His heart was hardened. And Pharaoh hardened it when he chose to reject the truth. But you might ask the question, well, if God has foreknowledge and he knew that Pharaoh would reject it and thus harden his heart even further, why would God present the truth if he knew that that was going to be the outcome? Why would he do it? Did he want his heart to harden? Mm -hmm. What's the answer? Why would he do it? He knew the future. He knew the outcome. He did it anyway. So therefore, God wanted it to be that way. All the other people. All all the other. He certainly had concern for all the other people. No question. That is a factor that has to be considered. But let's stick with Pharaoh. Why did he do it for Pharaoh. I like where you're going with that understand reality prior to Moses confronting Pharaoh with the truth and the various plagues that exposed the fallacies of what he was worshipping what state of being was Pharaoh living and operating in was, st- was Pharaoh prior to Moses presenting these things a righteous person in a saving relationship with God or a sinner dead in trespass and sin what was his state of being so for pharaoh to have any opportunity for eternal salvation mustn't he be presented with truth even if he should reject it wouldn't god give him the opportunity to accept it so god's role is the truth giver the revealer of truth this is why he did it because it's god is truth god is love So Pharaoh's state was terminal, destined to eternal death, unless Pharaoh converts. And what's necessary for Pharaoh's conversion? Pharaoh must be presented with truth, and Pharaoh must make a choice on what character, methods, principles, laws Pharaoh prefers, on who Pharaoh will trust, ultimately on whose kingdom he aligns his heart with, gods or satans. And he will solidify himself by his choice, in either accepting truth and being converted or rejecting truth and hardening himself against it. He will solidify himself in one of two camps. So from God's perspective, love presents the healing truth to redeem and save, and that is what God did. But Pharaoh is the causal agent that determined the outcome of the opportunity, not God. God sustains the operations of the law of liberty, but Pharaoh exercises liberty to reject the truth and thus hardened himself and is condemned by his own choices. Does that make sense to everybody? So yes, God keeps his promises, but we don't want to present his promises from an arbitrary dictator who will make it happen and God won't harden somebody's heart so he can... No, it doesn't work that way. So I think we need to be careful how we present our faithful God. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. Gone from Laban, Jacob soon has another experience with God. Knowing that his brother Esau is coming with 400 men, Jacob prays fervently to God, to the Lord, even though he acknowledges that I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant, Jacob truly has a better understanding of what grace is about. What triggers Jacob at this time in his life to have a fervent Heart-rending, soul-searching, total surrendering prayer to the Lord. What's the trigger? Fear. Exactly right. This prayer that he has at this time, do you see it being driven by overwhelming joy, love, thanks, appreciation? That's not what drives him to his knees. It was fear. Jacob is motivated by a situation That incites fear and, fear and, helplessness. Fear with a threat that he perceives that he's powerless to resolve. That's what drove him to his knees. Yes or no? Yeah? What's the threat? As Jacob's returning home, gets word, 400 men are coming. What is Jacob's greatest threat? for which he needs God's help in overcoming. What is it? Exactly. It's not the 400 men. It's not his brother. himself. That's his greatest threat. His own fear, his own insecurity, his long-standing habit pattern of figuring out a scheme that he can scheme his way out and not trusting God with his life and his fortune and his family and his future. That was his biggest threat. Was the threat... Now, but but he, did he perceive that that was his biggest threat? That was his biggest threat, but did he perceive it that way? Mm-hmm. Did he fall on his knees because he realized, my biggest threat is that I still am a fearful man who trusts himself. Is that why he fell on his knees? <laughs> no, what did he perceive to be the biggest threat? Brother. Brother. His brother and his 400 men. That was what he perceived to be the biggest threat. Was the threat from his brother real? Was it a real threat? Yes. Yes. My answer to that is, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out that when they met, Esau was actually not a threat to him. When they met, the encounter was not like the Assyrians who surrounded Jerusalem in Hezekiah's day. It did not require God to intervene with a striking angel to strike down the 400 supporters that he had. It did not require that, did it? No. But I say perhaps, because the outcome was that Esau didn't demonstrate any actual threat or hostility to his brother. Perhaps that is because Jacob had changed and the fear that he perceived coming from his brother that led to the wrestling with the angels through the night resulted in finally surrendering and being changed such that he stopped scheming and really trusted the Lord with the outcome. So he presents himself to his brother in humility, no longer conniving, no longer trying to manipulate for his own ends, And Esau recognized that and recognized his brother wasn't a threat. So he wasn't a threat to his brother. But perhaps if Jacob had returned arrogantly, narcissistically, uh, as the head of the family, claiming the birthright, claiming the rulership over Esau's land, property, and wealth, if he returned that way, maybe things turned out differently. Maybe Esau becomes a threat because he's being threatened. Yes, no, maybe? Am I wrong in thinking that I read somewhere that that Esau had a dream? I, I don't recall that, so if you find that, share that with us. Okay. Yeah, I don't recall that. Was God involved in protecting Jacob from Esau? Yes. My view, and I say how, my view is by changing Jacob from being the conniver, manipulator, to the humble person who trusts God. That's how he protected him, by changing his heart and his motives. But the point is that Jacob was afraid, and the fear was not coming from God, nor was it coming directly from Esau. Esau didn't send ahead threats, didn't send a message. Jacob sent messengers to Esau, I'm coming home, with messages of reconciliation, Esau didn't send messages back. Hey, hi, I haven't forgotten you, buddy. I'm looking for you. Your head's on my platter when I see you. There was no messages of a threat coming back. The fear wasn't coming from Esau. The fear was coming from Jacob. So where does Jacob's fear originate? Why is he afraid? What's its source? Guilt. Guilt inflames the fear. If, if Jacob hadn't uh, done wrong, does that mean Jacob had no fear? soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. fear. Fear is part of the infection of sin, the sin condition. We're born with it. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We all have fears and insecurities, fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of not being loved, fear of people could see the wicked things we've done, the bad stuff we've done, and they wouldn't like us, we'd be, we'd be humiliated, we'd be ostracized. Sin causes fear. It's an inherent condition. Only love resolves it. Love and trust. Love and trust in God. And so when we do sin, though, like he did, it inflames it. It makes it worse. Jacob hadn't resolved his fear, the fear that his own misconduct had brought. Hadn't changed his own record of self-dependence, manipulation, deceit, guilt, and shame, as was mentioned. Coming home gives Jacob the opportunity to confront these residual elements and surrender to God to be fully healed, reborn, recreated in righteousness. Do you understand why God allowed the events to unfold this way? Allowed. What did God want for Jacob? He wanted his healing, his restoration. He wants to be free. He wants Jacob to be free from the control of fear and selfishness. He wants him to trust him with his life. What would be required for this to happen for Jacob? Prior to these events, if you look at Jacob's life, he's constantly seeking to achieve what he wants through his own management. Including the fulfillment of God's promises. He's seeking to to, to get there on his own. Scheming, abilities, conniving, so forth. Uh, He didn't consistently live by faith or trusting God with how it would turn out. When his mother, think this through, when his mother tempted him, and she did, his mother came to him and said, Your father sent Esau out to go hunt and prepare him a meal. He's going to give him the birthright. He's going to give him the blessing. Okay, was my, 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 go get a kid. Bring it to me. I'll cook it the way he likes it. You go in. Okay, Mother's soliciting him to deceive the father. Jacob could have, could have, said to his mother, No, mother. I will not be party to deceiving my father. We can go in and we can talk to Dad. We can ask Dad uh, to give me the blessing, but I will not deceive my father. If God wants to put me, make me the heir of His promises to our family, then God can bring that about with or without my father's blessing upon me. What would have happened? Can you just imagine for a moment? Would, would, would things have gone? Would the story we have be the same? If Jacob, did Jacob have that option? Yeah. He did have that option. I I, I truly can't fully imagine the the cascading differences of events, who he would have married, and how the how the tribes would have been formed. It would have been completely different. But God's purpose is still to be worked out, and God's purposes being worked out are Genesis three fifteen. The seed of the woman is coming. The promised Messiah will crush the serpent's head. That's the promise being worked out. But Jacob, like each of us, is a product, or was a product, of his upbringing and was vulnerable to family influences and ties and who he trusts. And this is why Jesus taught us not to love our families more than him. A good example, right here. People he have said, no, Mom, I love you. I love you a lot, but I love God more. Can't do that. And Jacob chose to follow his mother's advice because Jacob had yet come to trust God completely. It wasn't until 20 years later, on his way back home, that events take place that bring Jacob to the decision point where he finally gets the victory over himself and trust God completely. So let's read, I'm going to read this little description or little story from Genesis 32, 3 through 27, out of the remedy. Jacob, Jacob sent envoys ahead of him, seeking peace with his brother Esau who was living in the land of Seir, in the region of Edom. Jacob instructed them, I want you to say this to Esau, emphasizing my humility and recognition of his familial lordship. Your brother Jacob says, I am your humble servant and have been living the past 20 years with Uncle Laban. I have all I need, my own cattle, donkeys, sheep, goats, male and female servants. I am sending this message to let you know that I am coming home and recognize you as Lord of our family, and I have no need of anything from the family estate. I hope you will forgive me, and there will be peace between us. When the envoys returned to Jacob, they told him, we conveyed your message to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and is bringing 400 men with him. Rather than rejoicing, At the news that his brother was coming to see him, Jacob's unresolved guilt over his mistreatment of Esau caused him to react to this news with intense fear and worry. Anticipating the worst, he divided the people, his people, flocks and herds into two separate camps. He thought, if Esau attacks one camp, the other camp may be able to escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my grandfather Abraham, God of my father Isaac, please hear me now. You, O Lord, are the one who told me to go back to your homeland and to your family, and I will make you flourish. I am your humble servant and unworthy of the loving kindness and faithfulness you have shown me. When I left home, crossing the Jordan, I had only my staff, and now I am returning with the abundance of two entire camps. But I'm afraid, overwhelmed by fear. I'm terrified that my brother Esau is coming to attack me, and not just me, but my children and their mothers as well. Please, Lord, intervene and deliver me. For you have promised, I will be good to you, watch over you, and multiply your descendants like the sands of the sea. They will be too numerous to count. Jacob stayed there that night and selected from his possessions the following as gifts to give to his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels and their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He separated them into individual herds and put them in the care of his servants. Then he instructed the servants, go ahead of me to meet my brother and keep some space between the herds. He told the servants leading the first herd, when you meet my brother Esau and he asked, whose servant are you? Where are you going? And who owns all these animals? You must say this. They belong to your humble servant, Jacob. They are a gift to you, the Lord of his family. And he is just behind us. Jacob gave this instruction to the second, third, and all the servants who followed with the herds. You must say the exact same thing to Esau when you meet him. Be certain that you say, your humble servant Jacob is coming right behind us. He thought, perhaps these gifts will soften Esau's heart and make up for the wrong that I did him. And when he sees me, he will forgive and accept me. So Jacob sent these gifts ahead of him, but he spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons to the ford of the Jabbok, where they crossed. After he sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. Struggling with guilt and fear, as he prepared to meet his brothers, Jacob remained by himself in order to pray. While praying, the gentle hand of the Lord touched him. But Jacob misperceived that he was being attacked by a man and wrestled with him until dawn. When the Lord saw that Jacob was continuing to fight against God's healing presence and that fear and guilt were near remitting, he gave him the nudge he needed to surrender completely. He reached out and touched Jacob's hip, dislocating the joint. Then the Lord said to him, You can let me go now. A new day has dawned for you. But Jacob replied, I can't let you go without the assurance of your blessing. The Lord asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the Lord said, You are no longer Jacob, the fearful, self-dependent deceiver, but you will now be known as Israel, the one who, with God, struggled against human fear and selfishness and overcame. Jacob, a real historic person who did real historic things, and his life is recorded both to give us the history of the family through whom Messiah is going to come, but also as an object lesson. What's the object lesson from Jacob's life which can be a benefit to all who apply? To not depend Trust. on our own works. Trust. Not to depend on our own works. Trust. Trust. Other thoughts? What's the greatest battle every person has to fight? Self. The battle against self. And can you overcome that battle against self by yourself? No. no, only with God. Only with God, in union with God, partnership with God. That's where the victory is in overcoming self. And then when we do, just like Jacob, we get a new name. We're reborn into a new family, and we get a new name. Uh, last paragraph says, And the evidence that he had been been forgiven was the change of his name, from the reminder of his sin to one that commemorated his victory. Your names of the angels shall no longer be called Jacob the supplanter, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. What's wrong with this paragraph? And there's something seriously wrong with it. Did you hear it? Did it pop out at you? It was like a neon sign going, warning, warning, because it did me. I read it like flash. I'll read it again. And the evidence that he had been forgiven was the change in his name. If the evidence that Jacob was forgiven was the change in his name, then when would Jacob have been forgiven? If the evidence was the change of name, then when was he forgiven? He was given the name. When the name was changed. So are you telling me that for 20 years, Jacob was unforgiven by God? No. God was unforgiving toward him. God was holding it against him. God was, was, was unforgiving. Hmm. It was Jacob that was unforgiving. This is what happens when you hold the false law view. That God's law works like human law. Forgiveness in, in that imposed model is a legal process. And it cannot be granted until either the penalty is paid or the penalty is paid and the person confesses and takes responsibility and repents. You have to have those processes occurring before the ruling authority can grant forgiveness. So God cannot forgive. He's restrained. He's unforgiving because Jacob hasn't repented yet. No. This is the false legal model. But the design law... Did Jacob trust God a lot because didn't he do something with a rod and a... The animals and God blessed him and that so he did believe in God, yeah, he believed there 's no question he believed problems too yeah, we talked last week and gave the end uh, of the class last week when he took the poplar trees and the um, uh, what were the other two types of trees poplar was one um there's three types of trees, and he took them, peeled the bark back, make stripes, striped, put it in the water that the ewes would drink from, and while they drank from it, um, uh, the, during, um, mating season, uh, then the babies that they had uh, were, um, either spotted or striped, which gave them to him. And we now know that, uh, that those particular trees he, he had, having a nutrient in them that causes an epinetic chain and a chain, change of expression in a gene called an agouti gene. The agouti gene affects uh, fur expression, um, whether the fur is solid color or speckled or striped. And if you alter the gene expression, then you get speckled and striped rather than solid color. So um, this wasn't just magic. God magically did something. We can do the same thing with animals by uh, giving them a... um, Folic acid supplemented diet, we alter their gene expression and cause the the fur on the animal to change. So, uh, we we, yes. So, but he did have faith. He did that, but it wasn't magic. It wasn't God miraculously doing it. It Was it was why he did it? What did he know? He was a he was a sheep herder. Maybe he had observed years of of sheep herding uh, that these things happen when they drank near these trees. And so he was hopeful. I don't know, but he also prayed. But back to the question here: law model. in the design law model, the offend, the offended god or the offended person forgives immediately in the opposed law model, forgiveness doesn 't happen until the payment is made or the person repents. You have to pay your fine, okay so the blood of Jesus has to be presented. you have to claim it in your behalf, then God can legally forgive you. This is paganism it 's fraudulent. It's like, just think this through. You owe somebody $10,000. The metaphor of the, uh, the the parable that Jesus gave of the debtor. He had this terrible debt. He couldn't pay it. And so the, the person who owed the debt forgave the debt. But imagine this instead. You owe $10,000. You can't pay it. And your older brother, who's actually quite wealthy, comes and pays your debt for you. After the person who has held your promissory note, had the debt, receives the $10,000, He's now been paid in full. He turns to you and says, now that I've been paid, I will forgive your debt. Your debt's forgiven. Does that actually work for anybody? You either get paid or you get forgiven. You don't get both. But the penal model teaches both. Jesus paid the debt and God forgives your debt. And nobody questions it because they're just programmed. It doesn't make sense what God's ways are. right. I don't think about that. I don't read. No. In the design law model, the person who has been offended immediately forgives. When did Jesus forgive his crucifiers? The people mocking him and nailing him to the cross, on the cross, did Jesus forgive them or not forgive them? Forgive them. Who pled with Jesus to get Jesus to forgive them? So, or was Jesus offering himself his own blood to pay the penalty so that he could legally forgive them? Uh, I've got a few drops of blood. If I had a hand here, I'd offer it to myself uh, so that I can forgive these people. Is that? Do you see that happening on the cross? Yes. That verse that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Yes. So let's see if, if that, that, that verse gets answered as we continue the progression of the process of how it works in reality. Okay. Is Jesus' forgiveness on the cross a legal act? These people, because Jesus forgave them, are now legally in a righteous and safe place because they have legal pardon from Jesus, the supreme judge of the universe. Is that what happened? They're now saved. Is Jesus God? Do we believe Jesus when he says, do you see me, you've seen the Father? Do we hear the words of Jesus to forgive them as the words of the Father forgiving them? Or do we divide the Godhead? Well, Jesus forgave because he's loving. But the Father, he, he's, he's an authoritarian judge. He, he needs to be pled with in order to forgive. We, we really don't think that. We, we know he said it, but we don't really believe it. They're not really the same. Did Jesus have authority? Well, Jesus didn't have authority to forgive sins, or did he have authority to forgive sins? Any evidence for that from Scripture? Yes. Yes? Where? Um, well, he told the man when he healed him that your sins are forgiven. He did say that. But he even said more, more, he absolutely right. When they lowered the paralytic down through the roof, remember the story? Before he heals him, Jesus said something very profound. So that you might know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He wasn't just telling the guy, the paralytic at the, at the pool, but he told the religious leaders who were watching, I have authority to forgive them. So he had the authority to do it. They're forgiven by the authority of the universe. Did the forgiveness that Jesus gave at the cross reveal the heart, character, attitude of God? Yes. Towards sinners. Yes, it does. And is that attitude forgiving or unforgiving? Forgiving. Forgiving. Did the forgiveness Jesus gave at the cross, maybe this answers your question, change the crucifiers into loyal friends of Jesus? Or did they remain in rebellion against him? So even though Jesus forgave them, they rejected that forgiveness. They were not humbled by it. They didn't repent. Therefore, they were not reconciled to God And even though they were forgiven by God, because that's who God is, they remained in a state of unforgiveness of being. And only when they confess and repent do they enter into the state of forgiveness that has already been extended by God. Does that answer the question? So when did God forgive Jacob? Because the, the words here, the evidence that he'd been forgiven was a change in name. I'm just, no, that is a legal issue that they're describing. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's fraudulent. He was, for, when did God forgive Jacob? He's what we read last week, remember when he's fleeing. He's, he, he's running away right now. It's the beginning of the 20 years of, of exile. And this is on his way out of, out of home, on way to see Uncle Laban. This is what we read. The Lord meets him there. At Bethel and says I am the Lord the God of your father Abraham the God of Isaac I will give you and your descendants the land in which you're lying your descendants will be like the dust of the earth you will s- spread out west and east and north and south all the peoples of the earth we bless through you and your offspring I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go I will bring you back to this land I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you does that sound like he's unforgiving here he was forgiven from the moment He committed a sin. But he had not entered into a state of living in an unforgiven state because he had not repented. His heart had not changed. He was still having guilt and shame and fear dominating his heart. God was forgiving, but he was unrepentant. And this is the problem. Sin happens in sinners, and it must be resolved, must be removed. But what happens to the penal model Sin is a legal problem that the ruling authority must hold you accountable for, and you have to do something to the authority so the authority can be changed in some mechanistic way to grant you forgiveness they wouldn't otherwise grant you if they're not paid. It's very corrupt. Every single sinner is forgiven by God. Because God is forgiveness. God is love. And all the lost in the end will still die in eternal death and will not be in heaven. Not because God didn't forgive. He forgives them all. They'll die forgiven by God. But they will die in a state of unforgiveness because they didn't receive it into their heart to be changed by it. Yes. That verse, if we confess our sins, it is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Can be better translated, and I don't know how you have it in the remedy. Uh, God is faithful and just in forgiving us our sins. If we confess, that means if we are in a state of accepting. Mm-hmm. So the obstacle to our salvation is not from God, is it? Is God ever the obstacle? Does anything need to be done to God to remove an obstacle to our salvation? The obstacle to our salvation is sin in us. Our distrust, our belief in lies, our fear, our self-centeredness, our carnal propensities. It's always in us as the obstacle. It's never in God. The penal model, though, teaches that, well, yes, we did have obstacles in us, our own carnal nature, our own sins, our own fear. That was all true. But God also had his holiness and his righteousness and his offended um, perfect being that needed propitiating. Uh, He was wrathful and angry because we offended him with our temerity. And so something had to be offered to him to pay and assuage and propitiate the wrath. That's pagan. It's not Christian. And so Paul says in Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. That's what happens. So I'm going to... Oh, and so... His name was changed when his character was changed. Because names represent character. It's not his name was changed when he was forgiven. No, he was forgiven. But it took 20 years of his own journey to work through and be brought back to this point where he wrestled with God to overcome the fear and selfishness of his own heart, where he was finally set free from the dominance of the fierce and selfishness conniving in his own character, where he trusted God with his future, fortune, family, and outcomes. He is now changed. He gets a new name. One who with God overcomes. That's why his name was changed. Uh, let's see. I'm going to skip, um, because our time just seems to be flying, Monday's lesson. And Monday's lesson is about the Jacob and Esau meeting each other. We'll go to Tuesday's lesson. The lesson focuses our attention on Genesis 34 and the sin against Dinah. Do you remember the sin? Jacob's just returned from Mesopotamia, settled in Canaan near a town of Shechem. The daughter, uh, his daughter Dinah, uh, goes out to visit some of the young women in town. Shechem, the crown prince who, for who, whom the local town was named. Dad was so proud of his son Shechem, he named the town after Shechem. So the town Shechem and the crown prince is named Shechem. Uh, Sees Dinah and sexually assaults her. But it's not just a violent assault. He was infatu- infatuated and taken with her. And evidently had poor impulse control. And so after he assaults her, he wants to take her for his wife. He doesn't want to cast her off. He doesn't want to throw her away. He wants to take her as his wife. Uh, he consoles her. He comforts her. Uh, she, according to the text, chooses to stay with him in the city after the assault. He sends his father, the king, to Jacob to negotiate for hand in marriage. Shechem himself pleads with the, with the Dinah's family, promising to do whatever they want, to pay the bride price that they would demand to gain their blessing and have Dinah for his wife. Further, Shechem's father offers to let them live in his territory and become part of his kingdom. Dinah's brothers, you know, respond deceitfully. They tell Shechem that the only way they can allow him to take Dinah as his wife is if all the men of the city are circumcised, and they will then grant permission and promise to live peacefully with him. The king and crown prince tell the men of the city what peace-loving and kind men Dinah's family are. So all, so the men of Shechem agree to be circumcised. Then on the third day, when the men are incapacitated from pain and fever uh, of their circumcision, Simeon and Levi, outraged at what happened to their sister, attack and kill all the men of Shechem. Then take doesn't just kill the men, then take all their possessions, their flocks, their herds, their women, and their children as their own to be slaves of them. Jacob is alarmed and concerned that their actions will cause the other city-states in the region to join together and attack and destroy his family. So following God's directions, he moves the family away. What are your thoughts about these events? Can we defend Shechem's initial actions of sexually assaulting Dinah? Can we defend that? No. We cannot defend it at all. It's it's sin. He assaulted her. It's wrong. But who did the greater sin? Shechem or Levi and Simeon? And it was greater in multiple ways. It was treacherous. It was deceitful. It impacted many more lives, harmed many more people. Do you think that Simeon and Levi thought that they were sinning? Do you think that they were telling themselves, you know, what we're about to do is wrong. We're about to sin against the Lord. We're about to commit injustice. We're about to do evil in God's eyes. But let's do it anyway. Do you think that's what they were telling themselves? Or do you think that they were telling themselves, injustice was done to our sister and justice requires we take action. Let's go do justice. Do you see the trap of Satan through all human history? Do evil. Have somebody do some wrong and then inspire people on the other side to do worse wrong under the guise of doing justice. If you haven't been awake, if you haven't seen this happening in America in the last five, ten years, you've been sleeping. Almost every so-called action of justice by certain justice warriors in our society are actually actions of injustice. Almost every one of them, acts of injustice. Do you see Satan at work in the events at Shechem, Satan at work? Spreading sinfulness and attempting to destroy the avenue for the Messiah. Do you see the bigger picture? He knows this is the family through whom the promised Messiah is coming. He wants to inflame all types of hostility. He wants to turn the nation states to destroy this brand. He wants to crush it. Do you see him at work here? Inciting people to do a wrong under the guise of supposedly setting right or wrong. Let's see if we can spell it out step by step. Shechem sexually assaults Dinah. Evil is done, sin is committed. The sinner, in this case, Shechem, doesn't seek to run from his crime, but seems genuinely remorseful, seeks to comfort Dinah, then goes to her family acknowledging his wrong, seeks to give Dinah station, name, stand, understanding culture. Having been sexually violated like this, if he leaves her, where where, where does her station end up? Will Jacob be able to find a another husband for her? Probably, no. No, she will either be a spinster or maybe a prostitute or something in the culture, or a third or wife or a or or a concubine of somebody. But but Shechem Shechem wants to make give her name, give her standing as a princess of the region. He was the crown prince by making her his wife and paying a bride price that the family demands. He is willing to do everything in his power to heal the harm that he caused her. Dinah, according to the text, seems agreeable because it says that she stayed in the city willingly. The brothers, however, now have an evil seed of resentment planted in their hearts. That seed, unremedied, sprouts and causes them to become incensed, outraged, and offended. They do not forgive, but seek to expunge the evil. And what methods did they use? They used deceit, breaking the ninth commandment. They used murder, breaking the sixth commandment. They dishonored their father, breaking the fifth commandment. They used the sign of God's covenant for evil, thereby taking the Lord's name in vain, breaking the third commandment. They stole property, breaking the eighth commandment, and coveted the property, breaking the tenth commandment think of all the innocence and, 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 and did all of it in the name of justice in the name of justice think of all the innocents of that city who were harmed by Simon and Levi as they sought to punish the wrongdoer to set the wrong right to exterminate evil to make a better and safer world in society We hear that argument. They did evil as a way of dealing with evil. And Satan celebrates because sin spreads. The hearts and minds of Jacob's sons were damaged. The goodwill towards Jacob and his family was turned to fear, distrust, perhaps hatred. Innocents were harmed. Who knows what good may have come? It sounds like Shechem, while he struggled with human temptation, had some redeemable qualities. And you say, well, uh, you know, he, he's not part of the tribe. He can't be redeemed. What about Ruth? What about Rahab? What about Tamar? Many Canaanites ended up part of the tribe, redeemable. How about this whole city perhaps could have been brought over to salvation had the brothers acted honorably? They also tarnished God's reputation. We can never win God's cause by using Satan's methods. I say this over and over again. And boy, have we seen Satan's methods used for so-called righteous causes. got to save lives, got to save lives. Let's coerce conscience. Let's put mandates on people. Wednesday's lesson. Let's see what we want to close out with here. Wednesday's lesson talks about the prevailing idolatry, and talks about as uh, God told them to leave after what what happened to check them. Uh, Jacob instructs them to take all their little idols that they would gotten from the um, possessions and property of. The people of Shechem when they took all their property, all those idols, and also little household gods that uh, evidently Rachel uh took from her dad Laban. All of them. Take get rid of them, bury them, leave them behind as they move on. And then uh God and then Jacob built an altar um when they arrived at Bethel to, to uh God. And get rid of all the household idols. What's the object lesson here? God can deliver us from the enemies of righteousness in this world. If we trust him, but he cannot deliver us from unrighteousness. If we cling to unrighteousness, can God free us from fear and selfishness? If we continue to practice fear and selfishness, can he free us from it? If we continue to engage, can he free us from sin? If we continue to practice sin, can God restore love and trust in our hearts? If we cling to ideas about God that cause us to be afraid of him and not trust him. Can he free us from distrust of him if we believe things about him that make us not trust him? Like, well, if we don't get every sin we've ever committed, remembered, and confessed, then it remains in a book, and God will be required to kill us unless Jesus offers the blood to expunge the record. So Jesus is for us, but God's against us. If we believe stuff like this, or God is required to torment us using his power to create a miracle to make us suffer in the fire as long as we deserve before he kills us, If we believe stuff like that, can you trust a God who would say, I love you, I only want your love, but if you don't love me, I will torture you and kill you. But I love you, really love you a lot. See, if you believe things like that, can he actually restore trust? No, that's why the truth will set you free. The truth restores us to trust and trust. When we open the heart, the Spirit comes in and takes the the motives and nature of Christ and reproduces it in us. We have a new mind with new motives, new desires. We don't live in fear anymore, we live motivated by love. If we want to experience God's healing, the healing he has for us, we must let go of our hold on the ways, methods, principles, and practices of the selfish world. That's what Jacob did. That's the lesson. He finally stopped trying to make his own way with his own schemes and his own self-protective mechanisms, and he finally trusted God with how it turned out. That's the lesson. And we are facing a time that is called Jacob's trouble. It's often referred to as right before Christ comes the time of Jacob's trouble. We will be faced with threats, And our challenge would be like Jacob when those threats come. Are we going to connive, scheme, use whatever authority powers we have to, to force others to do things our way in order to make us feel safer? Or are we going to trust our lives, our fortunes, and our futures with God and only live by the principles of God's kingdom? That's the lesson. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your trustworthiness. We thank you for what you've revealed to us in Scripture, in the life of Jesus, we now, at this time in history, we see the events unfolding. We see so many stories designed to make us fearful. But, Lord, we want to fix our eyes on you, the author and finisher of our faith, knowing that you uh, have your hand over us, will never leave us for forsake us, and that if we trust you, that you will walk us through that valley, that valley where all types of scary things are happening, but your rod and, and, and staff will protect us, comfort us, and keep us safe, bring us out the other side to live forever in your home. We pray in your holy name. Amen.